New Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Once again, I'm going to be interviewing myself. That's me. And today, our topic is going to be evidence for the afterlife. You're probably wondering why I've selected this topic and why I'm likely to keep addressing it for the next five or six months. It might have something to do, I suppose, with the Bigelow competition for the best essay providing evidence for the survival of human consciousness after permanent bodily death. Well, that's correct. That's a competition that has been all over the news throughout the world. And I'm hopeful, as a matter of fact, that many of my friends and many people who have been guests on the new Thinking Aloud channel will be entering the competition. I expect the competition will be extremely tough. But the real question is, what in the world do we mean by survival of human consciousness after permanent bodily death, and what would possibly constitute the best evidence for it? It's actually a much deeper and more profound question than appears on the surface, because on the surface, we think of ghosts, we think of spirits, we have many examples in film and in theater of uh, the intact human personality somehow surviving in another dimension. We could call it the Bardo plane or the astral plane, but it's in any case very much like the physical plane, only it's not physical, except occasionally it intersects with the physical world. That's the basic idea. That's probably what most people are thinking about. But when it comes to evidence for that, aside from works of fiction, what do we really have? I think it's a problem, isn't it? Indeed, it is a problem. The uh, most serious thinkers who have looked into this question, people like the philosopher Stephen Browdy, the author of Immortal Remains, a man who's been interviewed on this program many times, points out that uh, as far as he can tell, the very best evidence is confounded. It could just as easily be interpreted as evidence for psychic functioning among the living. In fact, I have to say when I first wrote about this topic in 1975 in my book, The Roots of Consciousness, I have a, a chapter called Death Within Life, Life Within Death, because these two realms seem to interpenetrate each other. And the great irony is the more we try to understand the nature of and the possibility of and evidence for life after death, we gain insight into life before death, into the living. Well, it sounds like there may be no logical solution to this problem that if the very best evidence for life after death could be explained as psychic functioning among the living, is there any way to resolve the problem? Indeed, that's the conundrum right there. If you can't solve it logically because 
and, and, and here's the reason. Basically, whatever evidence you come up with for survival of human personality, it's going to necessitate some form of psychic functioning among the living. If you're talking about a spirit uh, communication through a medium, the medium is a living psychic person. If you're talking about knowledge received by someone who has past life memories, that could be knowledge obtained through psychic means. And even in the most extreme cases where a person learns a language or can speak a language responsively, it's known as responsive xenoglossy, that they can converse in a language that they never learned. Well, we don't know the limits of human psychic capability. Can a person learn a talent like playing chess is another example through psychic functioning. Since we don't know the outer limits of what a living human being is capable of doing in terms of their extrasensory performance, then, then we can't determine logically. The best we could say is that we have a lot of very impressive evidence. It points to the possibility, certainly, of survival after death, but another equally plausible, and some people would say a better explanation because it involves fewer assumptions, is the idea that this evidence is produced through the minds and brains of, of living people. Uh, logically, there's no way to get around that, but there may be other ways. For example, the great psychologist William James, the founder of American psychology, suggests that one way to look at this evidence is to consider what he called the dramatic probabilities. And that's another tricky one because dramatic probabilities involve emotion. If it sways you emotionally, James himself was confronted by this because he engaged in the study of mediumship. Mrs. Leonora Piper, who lived in Boston and became a very famous medium in the uh, 19th century and even well into the 20th century, and uh, he had a dear friend and colleague, Richard Hodgson, who worked carefully with Mrs. Piper for many, many years, over a decade. And then Hodgson died, and Hodgson came through. Mrs. Piper would communicate messages from Hodgson. James found these messages to be dramatically probable. I think he was convinced in his heart that Hodgson had survived the death of his physical body and was now communicating to him through Mrs. Piper. But he never published that in any kind of a scientific publication. I think you'll find references to it in his letters and uh, journals and uh, other non-scientific publications, but he never felt he could go so far as to say this establishes post-mortem survival. And that's kind of the, the dilemma that we're at. Well, you yourself have also had some personal experiences that I have to say because I know you very well. Oh, you think you do. I know you very well, believe me. And I have to say, you 
personally lean very, very strongly towards acceptance of the survival hypothesis. I think it's fair to say you're not 100% committed yet, but you're probably 99.9% the way there. And the reason is because, let's face it, your entire adult life has been shaped by an afterlife encounter. Well, <laughs> that's certainly true. I have to look back many decades and see that I've been pursuing a career in parapsychology and a career in communicating the realities of the psychic world to the general public for many, many decades. And if I had to trace it back to a single seminal moment, it would be in early 1972, when I had the most powerful dream of my entire life. It's the dream in which my Uncle Harry came to me in the dream. I hadn't thought about Uncle Harry much, if any, at all for a decade. I mean, since I was a child, when we used to visit him in his home in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, where he ran a little corner grocery store and had an apartment behind the store. And I loved Uncle Harry because every time we came to visit, he'd go into the uh, store, open up the big freezer he had, and pull out Eskimo pies for all the kids. And to me, as a young child, if you had a freezer full of Eskimo pies, that was the epitome of wealth. But I hadn't had any contact with Uncle Harry. Uh, in 1972, I was 25 years old. I was enrolled in graduate school. I was in a career track to, to get a degree in criminology. I was doing psychotherapy at San Quentin Prison with murderers and rapists. And then I had this dream. And it was a dream in which Uncle Harry came to me. And in that dream, he spoke to me in a deep way about my life. Funny thing is, I, I don't think even to this day I agree with what he had to say. He, he was sort of suggesting that my attitude towards male and female relationships was messed up. That uh, somehow using the symbolism of the Chinese yin-yang, I, I think he was sort of suggesting that males should be dominant, females should be passive. But that was the least of it, because when I awoke from that dream, I was in the most unusual state of consciousness. Something had touched me so deeply. I was crying. I was crying tears of joy. That's never happened to me before or since. And subsequently, not subsequently, <laughs> and in addition, while I was crying, I was singing. I was singing one of the most sacred songs in the entire Jewish liturgy, Ovinu Malkenu, the song that's sung on the holiest Jewish holidays. I had been touched somehow with something beautiful, with something sacred. It touched me to my bones. It riveted my soul. And so I wrote home and I said, how's Uncle Harry? I had a dream about him. My mother called me as soon as she got the letter and she said, how did you know Uncle Harry just died? 
That's what I'd call dramatic probabilities. <laughs> That's when, when people are touched in that way. Now, William James wrote about what he called religious conversion. It didn't provide for me any kind of religious conversion. It provided me with the impetus to enter into a lifelong quest to understand the meaning of that dream. And for me, I have to say, <laughs> I've been on that quest now since 1972, nearly a half century. The impulse is still very strong. Something touched me very deeply. You could say it was uh, something from the spiritual world. It doesn't necessarily prove that Uncle Harry's consciousness survived death, but it comes pretty close. It comes pretty close. But let's face it, Jeff, you haven't had any subsequent communications from Uncle Harry. He maybe uh, touched you for a fraction of a second. Does that indicate the survival of human consciousness after death, really? Well, <laughs> that's the problem with evidence in this arena. You see, the evidence is often very fleeting. It, it's not necessarily sustained. Uh, even in young children who have vivid recollections of past lifetimes, typically those recollections fade as, as they get older. Uh, one of the most impressive cases is known as the Watsika Wonder, a case that occurred in the 19th century in Watsika, Illinois. It was written up. It's been made into many uh, dramatizations and film and radio and theater uh, about a young girl named Lorancy Venom. I think she was about 12 years old and she was having epileptic fits and it was quite serious. They were going to put her in an insane asylum, as a matter of fact, when some neighbors, the Roth family, suggested that instead they talk to a friend of theirs, a spiritualist doctor named Dr. Stevens, who wrote up the story because what subsequently happened is the Roths had a child named Mary who had died 10 years earlier. And it seemed as if what was happening is that Mary possessed Lorraine. And uh, this went on for about six months. And uh, Lorancy Venom actually went and lived with the Roth, Roth family for uh, many weeks at a time and seemed to know them all. From all accounts, she behaved as if she were their deceased daughter. And then after about six months, she said, it's time to go. And Lorancy went back to her family. She grew up. She got married. I understand she had 11 children. But uh, if we take the case at face value, and there are certainly many critics who would not do that, you, you can count on the fact that anytime evidence is provided in this domain, there will be critics who will find ways to dismiss it as fraud or delusion or superstition. And in this case, of course, that happened as, as well. But let's take it at face value. What we have is the possession of a living human being by a discarnate entity, one of, of a young girl who had died 10 years previously and who remained 
in possession of that child for a period of about six months, providing numerous instances of evidence that she was indeed the spirit of a child who had died, Mary Roth, who had died 10 years previously. If we take the case at face value, it's one of the strongest cases offering the spiritualist interpretation in this case of possession. I might mention parenthetically, of course, that reincarnation cases can also be viewed potentially as cases of possession. There's a thin line between them. But even in that case, it lasted six months. It's not necessarily permanent. Well, let's assume that uh, the case is a good one. It would suggest then that a deceased person can return and possess a living person at least for a period of six months. That would seem to be strong evidence. Indeed. In fact, the evidence is so strong that William James, who was a distinguished Harvard professor of psychology who wrote the first major textbook in psychology, wrote up that case and included it in his textbook as evidence for the spiritualist hypothesis about the self, about the human soul. And in addition, William James noted that his own colleague, the skeptical researcher Richard Hodgson, of whom I uh, mentioned earlier, uh, had traveled to Watsika, Illinois when the case was first published by Dr. Stevens, interviewing many of the participants, came back and reported to William James that as far as he is concerned, this is a legitimate case. Everything bore out. And I might mention also parenthetically that Richard Hodgson also achieved a lot of notoriety for his uh, supposed debunking of the uh, great occultist Madame Blavatsky and theosophy. Ironically, however, the Society for Psychical Research actually subsequently, nearly a century later, issued an apology to the theosophist and Madame Blavatsky because uh, Hodgson was overly critical, overly skeptical, and many of his arguments have now been debunked. Things relating, for example, to handwriting analysis of the uh, letters from uh, the masters that uh, Madame Blavatsky claimed had materialized and, and basically were apported into her study. Those letters, incidentally, to my knowledge, are still in the collection of the British Museum. This is an interesting excursion. We've talked about, perhaps, the very single strongest case in evidence uh, for human survival, at least uh, in the days of William James. And that's the era in which they were doing some of the very best research. Naturally, a vast quantity of evidence has accumulated subsequently. There, there's no doubt of that. The evidence in support of the survival hypothesis is just enormous. It's more than any one human being could absorb in their lifetime when you realize that it began in 1882 with a founding of the Society for Psychical Research, and uh, the evidence has expanded into areas such as reincarnation research, near-death experience, mediumship, terminal lucidity, deathbed visions. 
not to mention the vast literature from the spiritual and esoteric traditions. So, there's an enormous amount of data that has to be encountered by anybody who wants to come up with some sort of definitive account of where that evidence points and, and where it leads us today. That's fine and, and good. I know we're going to return to this subject many times over the coming six months. It's an opportunity for me and for me to sort through our own thinking in, in this area. And I can tell you, viewers, that we've just scratched the surface. But for now, I want to thank you for being with me. And thank you for being with us.